Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We have wrapped up 18 chapters worth, huh? 18 chapters and approximately 40 episodes. Now, chapter 19 is one of the more exciting chapters in all of the book of Revelation because it really does afford us the opportunity to go even deeper into this great topical theme of the marriage supper of the Lamb this overarching theme of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. And this will afford us the opportunity, that is a discussion on chapter 19, to get into some of Scott Hahn's Marriage Supper of the Lamb, his work titled The Lamb's Supper, The Mass as Heaven on Earth. I know I've promised that we would go through some of that, but we really haven't gotten into a whole lot of that. And certainly this evening, we will have that opportunity to do so. Now, before we get into chapter 19, I know some of you have I made a point to let me know that 40 episodes later, you are now finally getting some of the more richer themes. And let me say this, you know, there's something about the book of Revelation that is altogether unique in its symbolic imagery and in the way it is written. And because of that, it certainly is one of the more abstract books, if not the most abstract theological book in all of the Bible. And so, yeah, we are going to have to spend some extra time with certain themes, certain topics, certain words, certain titles, right, certain verses, and all of that is okay because before anything else, we have to remember that whatever book of the Bible we are studying, we are encountering Christ. And like I said yesterday, when we invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit and we invoke the presence of God in our study, then the study will be all the more enriched our encounter with God will be what it needs to be, and ultimately we will see our Bible study for how we need to see it, as an encounter with God, as something that has us going deeper in our courtship with God. It is about relationship, and I don't know about you, but if you're serious about any relationship, you're willing to be patient, huh? You're willing to take that journey, You're willing to to go deeper than you might not normally go (laughs) if you care for someone deeply. And of course, here in our study of the book Revelation, what we are talking about is the person of Jesus Christ. And I know if you are listening to this radio program, you care about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Consequently, you're willing to be patient. You're willing to go deeper. You're willing to do whatever it takes to get to know what this book is all about. And so to all of you, who have been patient, (laughs) and to all of you who have said, you know, here we are 40 episodes later, Joe, and I'm I'm just now finally getting an amen to that. And that is my hope, right? We still do have four more chapters. We still do have um, several more weeks, but in those weeks, it's just a continuation of what we've been doing, going deeper and deeper and deeper, mindful that the very nature of God is mysterious. And when you talk about what is mystery, you are talking about what is the inexhaustible reality, right? There's never a time where you have accumulated a total understanding of God. There's always more to get to know, and that's just the nature of God. It's not to say that 
one does not come to an understanding of the core principles of the Christian Catholic faith and the call we have to share those principles, but what I'm talking about is the mystery of God's love and how it continues to shake us up, how it continues to rattle us as it continues to surprise us, and it will do so because God is mystery and love is mystery. So with that, let us turn our attention again to chapter 19. And before we get into the verses themselves, I do want to draw out something that Michael Barber treats here in Coming Soon. Once again, he's very good about doing those juxtapositions, comparing and contrasting certain chapters with certain verses, either within the book of Revelation itself or with maybe some Old Testament books. Now, he makes some important connections between Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the end of Revelation chapter 11, and the vision that is presented in chapter 19. So let us go through this a little bit. If you were to go back to Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, we read, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. Chapter 11, verse 15. There were loud voices in heaven. In chapter 19, verse 1, that which we'll read here in a bit. I heard what seemed to be the mighty voice of a great multitude. So here we hear voices in those three verses. How about chapter 4, verse 10? The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. They cast their crowns before the throne. Chapter 11, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. In chapter 19, verse 4. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne. So here we see in those series of verses, those connections, what? But 24 elders falling down in worship before the throne of God. How about chapter 4, verse 8? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Chapter 11, verse 17. We give thanks to thee, Lord God Almighty, thou hast begun to reign. And chapter 19, verse 6, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So in that set there, you have this recognition of the Lord God being holy and almighty and establishing his reign over heaven and earth. How about chapter 4, verse 5? From the throne issue flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder. And chapter 11, verse 19, and there were flashes of lightning chapter 19, verse 6, like the sound of mighty thunder peals. So here we have the flashes of lightning, the voices and, and peals of thunder. So these three contexts are linked together. First, we have the Lamb's opening of the scroll, symbolizing the fulfillment of God's covenant plan with the saints in heaven. Second, we have the seventh trumpet at the end of Revelation chapter 11, which, of course, as we talked about, introduced the woman of chapter 12, who is Mary, the icon of the church seen in heaven. And third, the vision of the church, the bride of Christ coming down from heaven. In all of this, my friends, John wants us to see how Christ fulfills God's Old Testament promises through the church. And in the church, the spotless bride 
God's plan from the dawn of time is accomplished and Christ's victory is realized. His victory over the devil is finally complete. (laughs) And all of this converges in the event called what? But the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And here we can probably turn to Scott Hahn. You know, he says in the Lamb's Supper, the Mass is heaven on earth, and I love this point. In every age, the church faces mighty persecutors with ever more powerful armies and armaments. Yet weapons and legions and strategies all will fail. Great generals will ultimately fall to mortal wounds. But when the Lamb enters the fray, Scott Hahn says, and then he goes to quote Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the generals and the rich and the strong and everyone slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the what? Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand it? So my dear friends, the church is the army of the Lamb, the forces of Zion, preserved upon Jerusalem's destruction. And as you and I both know, as we've explored already in detail, the army of the Lamb draws strength from the banquet of heaven. And what about the Lamb? As Scott Hahn explores in the Lamb's Supper, this really is Revelation's favorite title and image for Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 5, he is what? Ruler. In chapter 1, verse 13, he stands amid the menorah robed as high priest. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he is the first and the last. In chapter 3, verse 7, he is the Holy One. In chapter 17, verse 14, he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But my dear friends, overwhelmingly in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the Lamb. If you were to turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Paragraph 1137, we are reminded that the Lamb is Christ crucified and risen, the one high priest of the true sanctuary, the same one who offers and is offered, who is given and is given. Now, what's interesting is that when John first sees the Lamb, he's actually looking for a what? A lion. And this is another point Han makes in the Lamb's Supper. You see, no one is able to open the seals of the scroll and reveal its contents, and John begins to weep. Then an elder reassures him, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John looks around for the lion of Judah, but he sees a what? A lamb. Lambs are not very mighty to begin with, right? And in chapter 5, verse 6, we read that he is one standing as though it had been slain. What should be clear is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, like the Passover lamb of God. Now, there's something else here that we should speak to before we get back into the verses themselves, and that is the importance of the authorship of this book, the book of Revelation. And of course, it's linked to John the Apostle. For Revelation and the fourth gospel share many theological concerns. Both books reveal a rather precise knowledge of the Jerusalem temple and its rituals. Both seem to be very much preoccupied with presenting Jesus as the what? The Lamb. 
the sacrifice of the new Passover. Moreover, John's gospel and the apocalypse share some terminology that within the New Testament is very peculiar only to them. For example, only the fourth gospel and the apocalypse refer to Jesus as the what? Word of God. And only these two books refer to the new covenant worship as in the Spirit. Also, only these two books speak of salvation in terms of living water. Now, there are many other parallels, but we stop there and highlight that these parallels are necessary to see because, again, it brings to light the authorship of John the Apostle. In the Gospel of John, John is identified as the what? The beloved disciple of Jesus. John was the apostle on the most intimate terms with the Lord, the disciple who was literally closest to his heart. John reclined on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, right? Yet in the apocalypse, when he saw Jesus in his power and glory with universal dominion and divine sovereignty, John did what in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation? Fell on his face. Scott Hahn reminds us that essentially these are important details for us. Because if we want to be beloved disciples today, we need to take up that same posture. If we want to have that holy conversation with Jesus Christ as we ought, we have to be mindful of who the author is that is pinning not only, of course, the Gospel of John, John the Apostle, but also the one who is pinning the book of Revelation, because it helps us better understand the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will be reading about, that this is a marriage supper that involves the most intimate language. And so we hit the pause button to consider this for what it is, that indeed, John was the beloved disciple. He was the one who was closest to our Lord's heart. And consequently, it is right that he pens the book of Revelation that would talk about the Mass here on earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Christ enters into a bridal union with our very souls. So uh, widely important. Okay, all of that being said, let us now jump into chapter 19. And as I noted, I will read verses 1 to 5. So if you have your Bibles out, we will go to chapter 19, verses 1 to 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the mighty voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Alleluia! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice crying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Small and great. Okay, now let us recall some of the context to which we were talking about the other day, huh? The context as it relates to chapter 18 and the whore of Babylon. In response to the fall of Babylon, the saints in the heaven do what? Rejoice. Now, there is a close resemblance between John's words here, he has judged the great harlot and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants, to the prayers of the souls under the altar that we talked about in chapter 6, verse 10. How long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood? 
And this comparison reveals what? That God has heard their prayer. And of course, with all of this, the saints and angels, we should say, as Michael Barber says, erupt in praise, erupt in worship. You know, we hear the word erupt, and what do we think about? We think about a fan in a stadium, right? I mean, I, I can't do a show of hands. I'm in a studio on the radio, but if I was in front of a congregation right now, I would ask for a show of hands if you think of a fans in a stadium when you hear the word erupt. Why do I talk about that? Well, my dear friends, what is a fan? A fan is a fanatic. Okay, we are fanatical for our teams. Are we a fan of and for Jesus Christ? Are we fanatical for Jesus Christ? Do we erupt in worship and praise when we see Jesus Christ winning? Huh? Have you ever thought about it that way? Maybe we should start thinking about it that way, that we should be first and foremost fans, fanatical for Jesus Christ, erupting in praise and worship when we see God do great things here on earth. And what else? People will notice. My dear friends, people will notice. What do we read at the end of the letter to the Hebrews? Do we not read that the saints are cheering us on? They're erupting in praise. When they see us do good things, we should be doing the same. And I dare say when we do, we participate very much in what the saints and angels are doing in the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, what else could we say? Well, Revelation 19 is the only place in the New Testament where we hear the word hallelujah. Isn't that interesting? Hallelujah. The word comes from the praise the Lord in Hebrew, uh, the halal, which means literally to praise, more specifically to praise Yahweh. The word is well known, I think, to all of you who are Catholics who regularly speak this word at Mass. Yet, very few people, as the commentaries highlight, realize or understand the deep significance of this word. The word was used to refer to Psalms 111 through 118, which are called the Hallel Psalms. These psalms function as praise for the coming and triumph of the Messiah, which is depicted in the previous chapters, chapters 108 to 110. Now, to best see this, uh, Michael Barber offers some background. And as he notes, the book of Psalms is carefully arranged. The psalms move from songs of lament, which very much make up the majority of the first half of the book, to psalms of what? Praise a theme that abounds in the second half. In fact, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is arranged into five books. Book one is chapters 1 to 41. Book two, chapters 42 to 72. Book three, chapters 73 to 89. Book four, chapters 90 to 106. And book five, chapters 107 to 150. And there is a traceable movement in these Psalms. Book one is primarily made up of psalms about David and seems to very much end with a prayer that the king sang as he lay on his deathbed. Book two ends with Psalm 72, a song about Solomon, the successor of David at the height of his reign. Going on, Psalm 89, which ends book three, recounts the defeat of the Davidic king in Israel's exile. And with Israel in exile, Moses enters the scene in book four. Psalm 90 is in fact known as what? A prayer of Moses. 
And throughout this book, Israel's wilderness experience is recalled, which very much forms the basis for the hope of, what did we talk about yesterday? The new Exodus. Book 5, chapters 107 to 150, subsequently pictures the restoration of Israel. And after the first psalm of book 5, Psalm 107, which celebrates the deliverance of Israel, the Davidic king, the Messiah, returns to sing Psalms 108 to 110. And after appearing in 108, he suffers in chapter 109, only to be glorified in chapter 110. Indeed, my friends, the New Testament points to Psalms 109 and 110 as prophecies concerning Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, essentially the Paschal mystery. So with the Messiah's victory, Israel explodes into the praise of the what? Hallel Psalms in chapters 111 to 118. And these Psalms function as a response in many ways to the triumph of the Messiah in Psalm chapter 110. They represent a kind of climax toward which the entire book of Psalms has been moving. Because these Psalms celebrate the return of Israel in the new Exodus, it should be no surprise that they were used during the Passover meal, which of course celebrated the first exodus. You see what's going on here? How important is that? How important it is to see the relationship between just not Revelation 19 and the word hallelujah, but its link to Psalm 108 to 110 and consequently 111 to 118. Now, the Hallel Psalms were divided into two parts, one sung before and one sung after the meal. In fact, it was believed that the Messiah would come to restore the kingdom on the feast of Passover. In this, the first exodus was linked to the new exodus. And it is the book of Revelation that manifests these hopes. After the plagues which bring about the destruction of the city called the new Egypt, God's saints in heaven do what? They rejoice. They sing to God the new song sung by Moses at the edge of the sea. They burst into celebration singing, Hallelujah. Furthermore, all of this is done in the context of what? But a supper. And this is why we read from Scott Hahn, Michael Barber, and many others that we are made to see the Passover liturgy, which later became the Eucharistic celebration as the background for John's vision in Revelation 19. And how about those all-important verses in 6 to 9? You've heard me already say that there are certain verses that are very important, okay? Highlighted by Revelation 5, 6. You have also heard me say that in many ways, the most important verses in all of the book of Revelation are verses 6 to 9. So here they are. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. 
Amen to that. There is a profound contrast between the spotless bride who wears her righteous deeds as garments and the harlot who was the mother of, what did we read in chapter 17, verse 5? The mother of the earth's abominations. And yet the harlot inadvertently plays an important role, does she not? For God used her persecution of the saints as a means to prepare his bride. Truly then, the bride has cooperated with God's grace so that she is not simply prepared by God, but we are told has made herself ready. Furthermore, the garments in which she is clothed are reminiscent of the garments of the high priest, are they not? Who in Zechariah chapter 3 verses 5 to 6 and Exodus chapter 27 verses 2 to 5 also wears linen garments as a sign of holiness. Remember what the word holiness means. It literally translates as to be set apart. The Hebrew is tied to the word marriage. So we are set apart to the extent that we enter into the what? Marriage supper of the Lamb. In our own marriages, we are set apart, made more holy to the extent that we die to self for the sake of our spouse. And in that way, we are a kind of prototype for the church and how we are called to enter into our marriage with Christ. What's more? Well, Isaiah similarly combines the image of a bridegroom wearing priestly garments and a bride bedecked with jewelry to describe restored Israel. Go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's a beautiful passage. That's Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. So the righteous deeds of the saints, my friends, are understood in terms of what? But a priestly offering, which in turn makes the church ready for her wedding to the Lamb. All right, there is so much more here to talk about with these all-important verses, but we are out of time. This is going to have to wait till next week. Maybe I, I, I have you on edge. Very much looking forward to next week now as I've kind of put myself in a box by saying these are the most important verses in all of the book of Revelation, but there are many who agree with me on that. I am not flying solo. That's, this just isn't Joe Holcraft carrying on. No, this is something that many, many commentators highlight, and I'm just echoing them, that really to get at the heart of the book of Revelation, one must spend more time with these four verses. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of the book of Revelation, a gift especially during this season of Advent where we are in this mode of preparing, in this mode of waiting. So we enter deeper into this call we have to enter into this marriage supper, to enter into this bridal union with Christ as we await and prepare for his first coming on Christmas Day. Amen, amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.com.
www.ghostbusters.org. <laughs>